Chapter 11, Steps Heroes are all around us, hiding until it's time. It's time. Steps You don't have to eat the fries, but that's a perfectly good club sandwich, and I know you're good for at least half of it. Ed, I'm not hungry, and I don't have time. Amelia Karen was feeling uncharacteristically shy. She was supposed to be in charge, and so receiving care and attention was not something she knew how to handle. It made her uncomfortable. Her assistant was aware of all of this, and he played it perfectly. I'm going to finish my crossword while you eat. Ed refolded his copy of the Mountain Valley Times and perched his readers down onto the tip of his nose. Take as long as you need, he added, before looking down. Ed, you brought me here to tell me something. She was trying to make this about work, to take control of the discussion. So much had changed for her over the past several weeks, and she was doing everything possible to deny it. I did. Without looking up, Ed took a french fry off of his boss's plate. But you get no information until you've eaten a decent meal. Eat first, then we talk. He wanted her to rest, to eat something, to be okay. He kept his eyes glued to the crossword puzzle. If he pretended not to watch, maybe she would eat the sandwich. Amelia expanded her cheeks out like a trumpet player and then exhaled slowly. She had a choice to make. She could eat the meal and get the information Ed had promised her, or she could get up and leave. She could make a dash for the door and maybe just keep running. Tempting, she thought, inflating her cheeks again before breathing out. She scanned the restaurant. It was late, nearly 7 p.m., and she could see Evie counting receipts while a teenage boy scoured the grill behind her. Reluctantly, she lifted part of the sandwich to her lips. Ed's large hands seemed to come out of nowhere as he expertly pulled a stiff paper napkin from the table's dispenser and handed it to her, all the while keeping his eyes glued to his puzzle. Amy hesitated and then reached out to take the napkin. The first bite was glorious. The act of eating, the taste of salty bacon, and Ed's fatherly determination to feed her felt good. And though she would never say it out loud, Ed was right. She needed help. I've got more hot water if you want it, Evie called out from behind the counter. Yes, please, Ed answered back while reaching over for another fry. He was still giving his boss the silent treatment. They were the only two customers that night, just two lone figures sitting quietly in a booth along the window. Despite the hard edges and harsh lighting of this tired and tiny restaurant, the booth felt sheltered and private, safe. The doctor's eyes drifted past the diner's plate glass window. Enormous snowbanks prevented her from seeing the road beyond, and she wondered, like she always did this late in the season, if the small mountain range that lined Main Street would ever melt. She took another bite of her sandwich before catching her own reflection in the glass. She looked gaunt and sickly. She looked like Harper. As a doctor, she knew that her beloved aunt was going to die. The diagnosis was crushing and cruel. There would be two deaths, 
First, Harper's mind and memory would leave her body. She would lose her intellect, her humor, and her independent spirit. This was expected to happen rapidly, and indeed, within the year, Harper was barely a shadow of the brilliant woman she had once been. The second death, the one where Harper's physical body would slowly break down and stop working, would take years, and Amelia had made all the necessary arrangements to keep her aunt safe and comfortable for however long it took. But then Harper stopped breathing. Heart failure had been accused, but even all these weeks later, Dr. Karen still could not accept it. Sixty-year-old women in good physical health don't just collapse from heart failure. Compelled by a force she could not yet understand, Amelia had rushed home on that late afternoon in December. She was on foot and ran the three blocks in a crazed panic until she reached their A-frame on the north side of town. She burst in through the front door, flying up the staircase past the sleeping nurse and blaring television. Harper was alone on the floor of her loft bedroom, unresponsive, gone, and for Amelia and Karen, every moment since that day had been agony in slow motion. So, this is what it feels like to be depressed, she thought one night while pacing the second floor of their home. She'd found her way to Harper's room, half expecting to see the familiar nightlight still on. She moved to the window and looked out. Whatever did you see out there, Harper? she whispered. When nobody answered back, Amelia walked out and closed the door behind her, never noticing the enormous crucifix that covered the window. Harper had drawn it with her finger, the oil from her skin still visible on the glass. After the funeral, the once sunny house turned shallow and unfriendly. Happy memories stood, bound and gagged behind the wood-paneled walls, forced to watch in silence while a dark and heavy melancholy moved in. Amelia began to hate going home and would often spend her nights on her small office couch. The jangle of Ed's keys opening the office suite in the morning would bolt her upright. I um, came in early to dictate notes. She'd lie while trying to fix her hair. The doctor was letting sadness make decisions, and they were bad ones. Maybe she could outsmart her grief by working herself into a paste. But grief is like water, relentless and insidious. Fueled only by time, even the smallest drip can carve out canyons and rearrange landscapes. She should have known better. She watched her colleague across the table in front of her as he pretended to focus on his puzzle. This wise and wonderful assistant had become her friend. Ed? Mm-hmm, he answered, finally deciding it was safe to look up. Thank you. And then it happened. She was crying. Quietly, steadily, tears formed and fell while she sat back in the booth, her arms hanging limply at her sides. She was looking straight at Ed, hoping he could stop this freefall. It feels lonely now, I know, but you're not alone. His eyes held her securely. In time, it's going to get a little easier, I promise. And when her lips stopped trembling, he moved her mug over toward her. Now, come on, drink some tea. 
and she did. Another napkin appeared before her, and she took it gently from his hand and blew her nose. You don't want that piece of pie over there, do you? Ed nodded in the direction of the rotating dessert case. It held one last slice of something, too old and too tired to hold up its own meringue topping. His question made her chuckle, pulling her back from the edge. It was time to talk. So, what did you want to tell me? she asked, already strengthened by the healing effects of food and friendship. We're going to do this again, this eating thing, just so you know, Ed warned kindly. His bushy gray eyebrows danced as he spoke. Okay, yes, I'll be sure to prepare myself. But now my tea is gone and Evie wants to close up soon, so we'd better get to it. The doctor wiped the last tear from her cheek with the palm of her hand. Her assistant nodded in agreement. Right. Well, I did some research on our client, Abram Glass, and you're going to want to hear what I have to say. By the time the sheriff's Ford Explorer reached the top of the hill, the snow had tapered off and a low winter moon was peering out through the clouds. The little white farmhouse sat directly in front of him and it filled his entire windshield. It was lifeless, frozen, and surrounded by snowdrifts as high as his vehicle and as smooth as white fondant. The driver of the late-model Subaru wagon was attached to this address, yet it was clear to Nathan that she hadn't been through these doors in a very long time. This wasn't good news for the woman, of course, but also for the search team that was about to say goodbye to a weekend off. What he did see were tire tracks large enough to belong to a service vehicle. He lowered his power window and traced the tracks with his eyes as they stopped just in front of the driveway and then rolled under him, ending thirty yards straight back under the shadow of a large fir tree. Nathan's brow furrowed, and he radioed dispatch with his location and his intentions. I'm here. Gonna have a look-see. Can you get Carlene on the phone from Red River? Ask her when the last oil delivery was to this address. Someone's been here with a truck. So I'm wondering if maybe Roy came up to refuel, but then couldn't get through the deep snow? Anyhow, I'll check back in 30. 10-4, a voice on the radio crackled back. It was Donnie. He was on duty back at the station. Be careful up there, boss. You bet, Nathan quipped back. In an effort to light up the house and yard, the sheriff switched on his high beams. Then he stepped out of his vehicle. The night was clear and cold. He grabbed his gloves and flashlight from the back seat and then walked over to the location where the tire tracks ended. He was still wrestling with his gloves when he noticed boot tracks. They were everywhere. Using his flashlight, he scrutinized the footprints and squinted as he watched the tracks move through the deep snow along the far side of the property, just under the tree line. It was obvious that this visitor was trying to hide. But why? Okay, guess I'm going for a walk then, he said out loud, resigning himself to a cold, wet trek through the deep powder. As soon as he stepped off the road, he sank up to his hips in snow. Nathan lumbered through the snow along the side yard, following the trail until it looped back and finally ended in front of the old barn. He remembered coming here as a youngster. Back then, the farm felt like the center of the universe. Apple picking, hay rides, fresh cider. 
September always meant a visit to White's Apple Orchard, and he was sad when it closed. To him, it felt like the end of an era. Now, he stood alone before the massive barn door and took a minute to catch his breath. The dark stillness of the night was in stark contrast to the joyful bustle of harvest season, and it felt spooky. He leaned against the barn door, slowly rolling the door open. He took one step inside and immediately was overpowered by the acrid smell of rot and feces. It was so thick and alarming that Nathan struggled to keep his composure. He doubled over, dry heaving for several seconds. Quickly, he removed one of his gloves and he used it to cover his nose and mouth. His eyes were watering. My God! Oh, what is that? He gagged while saliva fell from his mouth. With his other hand, he pointed his flashlight into the darkness. Anyone, oh, anyone in here? He managed to choke out, already sure that no living creature could stand this punishing stench. It's Sheriff Randall, and I am coming inside, he announced, before committing to a second step forward. Ed... What are you doing? Spying on patients is out of the question, not to mention illegal. Amelia had hoped to put the encounter with Abram Glass behind her. Her one-time meeting with this man had unnerved her deeply, but when Harper died, she had tucked her concerns away along with everything else. Now, Ed was bringing it all back. I am not spying on patients. I'm spying on this patient. And I will remind you that I wanted to call the sheriff the day we met this fool, so I'm not worried about the law. Ed was holding a manila file folder in both hands. This man made threats, very specific ones. We both know what he said, and I think it's in our best interest to know who he is, Ed continued. Well, do you want to hear what I have to say, or should I just take this information directly to the sheriff? She knew Ed well. He didn't make idle threats. Go ahead. I'm listening. Ed moved the dishes and silverware out of the way with his arm and placed the file down on the booth's worn Formica tabletop. His name is Abram Michael White of White's Apple Orchard. Abram Glass, my derriere. I knew that wasn't his name. The kid grew up here. His father, who had also disguised his name, had been the one to call for the appointment on behalf of his son. He opened the file and removed two photocopied documents. As you'll see here, I was able to confirm that our Mr. White was abducted in Afghanistan, as he claimed. It made national news when it happened, but I hadn't connected the dots, probably because of the fake name. No one has been able to corroborate his story about exactly what happened during his capture, and the details seem to change, depending on who's asking. I made transcripts of all the interviews he's appeared for. Regardless, what has been confirmed is that nobody else made it out alive, just Abram White. And now he's home. And I think he's staying at his father's apartment, which is right over there. Ed pointed his index finger at the small apartment that sat directly across the street. It was on the second floor over Stubby's garage, and it looked as though every possible light was on. It glowed like a spaceship. Clyde lives in that apartment, he stated with some satisfaction. Okay, 
So you're telling me this because you want to update the address information in the patient's file? No. Ed's finger rested on the plate glass window, but his eyes turned to meet Dr. Karen's. I'm telling you this because, after our meal, I'm walking over there to knock on Clyde's door. Guided by his flashlight, the sheriff slowly advanced along the perimeter of the barn's interior. He shuffled his feet, being careful not to trip on whatever might be in front of him. One careless mistake could result in a broken ankle, or worse, and the last thing he needed was to get injured and then stuck in this god-awful place. The noxious odor was suffocating, but the barn was cavernous, empty. As Sheriff Randall turned to leave, his flashlight caught the edge of something solid, a wall. It was placed deep in the center of the barn. Cautiously, he padded toward it. It was high, easily over eight feet tall, and as Nathan walked around it, he counted three more walls. It was a tower made from bales of hay. What in the devil's name is this? he muttered, oblivious to just how relevant his word choice really was. Next, he touched the hay. It was fresh. Someone had placed it here recently. Nathan was confused. Why would the homeowner buy bales of hay, only to stack them in this strange configuration? And besides, how could she have lifted them so high? He leaned against one of the walls and pushed it with his shoulder, hoping to knock it over, but the walls were thick, maybe two or three bales deep. It was unmovable. With each shove, the odor seemed to seep out and grab him by the throat. This time he thought he could smell sulfur mixed with human waste and something else. It permeated his skin and his nose. It burned his eyes. He was reaching the end of his tolerance. I gotta get out of here. Just then, he heard something move only inches behind him. He spun around, aiming the flashlight down onto the dirt floor, fully expecting to see feet. There were none. Someone had been right there. Nathan did not call out. Instead, his right hand slowly dropped down and unsnapped his holster. He waited for the visitor to move again. The hairs on his neck prickled and his pulse quickened. Silence. He waited several minutes. Nothing. Just then, the sheriff's cell phone rang. It startled him so deeply that he nearly popped out of his own skin. Go ahead, he managed to croak. Nate! Spruce, I'm not explain. I can't sneak, can't. It was Sheriff Belanger, but his cell phone connection kept conning out. I'm not close by, Bruce. Can it wait until tomorrow? Nathan was relieved to have Bruce's voice for company while he briskly made his way toward the barn door and out into the fresh air. Bruce was still talking. Nathan was really only half listening. He was locked onto another set of tracks, but this time they led straight from the barn directly up the driveway, right past the house, and it looked as though this person had been running. Sorry, Bruce, say that last part again? Nathan was following the tracks up the driveway as he listened, dramatically improving his cell connection with Bruce. I said, I have a dead man in a field, frozen solid and completely drained of blood, and now I'm looking at what seems to be some sort of 
torture chamber. Maybe for animals, but I don't think so. I think it's much, much worse. Sheriff Randall had stopped walking. Dr. Karen was seated in her car, and Ed was bent over, leaning on the door as he spoke. Please stay behind here, in your car, with the doors locked. If you see any trouble, call Sheriff Randall, but do not leave your car, and do not open the door for anyone. What are you going to do when you get there, Ed? I'm not sure you're thinking this through. Ed's intensity was scaring the doctor. Don't ever accuse me of not thinking this through, Amelia. I've been thinking of nothing else since I first put eyes on that SOB. Geez, Ed, take it down a notch or two. You're freaking me out here. Amelia, you're a very good doctor and a wonderful boss and friend, but I gotta be blunt. You've checked out, and I get it, but some serious stuff has been going down, and now I need you back. This man wants to hurt my daughter, and... And he made sure to meet her eyes before continuing... I think he's connected to Harper's death. Amelia looked away while Ed hit her with more truth. I know you feel it too. It's also possible that you may even be in danger. My plan is to get to the bottom of all of this before something else happens. Ed tried to soften his tone. Look, if all goes well, this will be a short discussion, but just in case, please do as I ask and be ready to call for help. Dr. Karen's eyes were wide as Ed closed her car door. Now lock up, he commanded through the window, his voice muffled as he stood outside. She said nothing and did as he asked. Once he heard the locks engage, he stepped away. She watched Ed cross the street and move briskly to the side of the gas station toward an exterior staircase. In no time at all, he was ascending up toward Clyde's second-story apartment. He never looked back, never even hesitated. Ed made an unlikely hero in his tan Canuck parka and gray wool derby cap. His quiet bravery manifested with each step forward. Steps, written and performed by Bridget Emmons. Thanks for listening.